morning, everyone. So, yeah, I'm Ollie. Um, sorry that my shirt is wet. My son has been drooling on me <laughs> all through worship, so I'm a little embarrassed, but uh, this is family, right? Uh, yeah. Great. So I've got two boys. I'm married to Debs, uh, and uh, we've got two boys, Caleb and Kai. We've got a little girl on the way in December. And um, yeah, family's growing, and they are lots of fun, and it's just uh, lots of challenges too, but uh, God is so good, hey? And um, yeah, so as Ali said, we're in a series called DNA. So if you're joining us for the first time, welcome this morning. We're in a series called DNA, and what we're basically trying to do is lay out what we believe as a church community, how it affects what we do as a church, and what it looks like on a heart level and practically to partner with One Hope Church, Stellenbosch. And so to that end, we've spent the last three weeks or so looking at what church is, um, why we believe that church is worth it, and why scripture calls us to meaningful involvement in church community. And so all these sermons are online, and if you missed them, I want to encourage you to listen to them and catch yourself up. But just by way of very brief summary so far, we've come to the following conclusions. The first, that the church is the bride of Jesus. His body, it's made up of people, the people that he died to save and who have responded to him in repentance and faith, whom he will marry on his return at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We've seen that Jesus himself is the original missionary and church planter. He's the one who set it all in motion and sustains it forever. We've looked at the distinction between the universal church and the local church. The universal church being the full conglomeration throughout the ages of God's people everywhere, which will, be, which will be fully perfected and united with the Lord at the consummation of the ages, with whom he will make his dwelling in the renewed creation, the new earth. We also looked at the local church, which is the visible and imperfect gathering of the church in every location where she gathers across the globe where God is worshipped, where Christ's gospel is preached and his sacraments observed. And so for our purposes, we focused in on the fact that the way we commit to that great big universal church that we have believed into, if we've believed into Christ, is by committing to a local body of believers, right? Where we are known and loved and where we work out the new identity that we've received through the gospel in the context of family where we live out all those one another's that we find in Scripture, which Paul has summed up for us on that handout that's gone around. And so if we could sum it up in one sentence, it's being meaningfully part of a committed community is God's idea of what is good for us. And so what I want us to do this morning is pick up over here by going to a text in Acts chapter 2 that describes what this looked like for the early church in Jerusalem. So if you've got your Bibles, you're welcome to turn to Acts 2.41, otherwise it's going to be over yonder on the screen. I'm going to just read a few verses up to verse 47. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Right, so the author tells us that they devoted themselves to some things. That is, when we say devoted, it means they wholeheartedly plowed their time, their energy, and their resources into what? Firstly, they devoted themselves to the gospel message, the apostles' teaching, right? Then they devoted themselves to the gospel community, to the fellowship. And then they devoted themselves to the gospel mission. And we just see how beautiful it is, all these people being saved and being added. And so the next section of, the, of this series, we want to spend by looking in more detail at what we believe. What is the basis for our fellowship together? And it's important for us to address this and to look at how we process these things in such a way that we are able to partner together meaningfully and productively. So I want to put a bit of an ethos out there, kind of a grid through which we, we explore these things. And it's this, that we, when we look at issues, we're looking at either blood issues, pen issues, or pencil issues. So a blood issue would be something that we hold absolutely central to who we are. It's something that we're willing to die for. It's something that we're willing to lay our lives down for. That is what, what underpins who we are. Pen issues are things that we, we believe strongly about, but we are not... We're not, they're not blood issues. We're not going to die for them. We're not going to kill anyone for them. Not that we propose <laughs> proponents of killing anyone for anything. But, um, but yeah, those are things that we are, are willing to, to look at over time and say, hey, maybe we were wrong about this one. And then pencil issues are things that are, we hold lightly. We're just like, you know what, like if you believe something different, that's, that's really fine. And a helpful mantra when it comes to thinking through these things uh, is one that we get from the Moravian Church. And I think Paul has mentioned this before. They said this, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In everything, charity or love. And that's just a really, really helpful and beautiful grid to process how we look at what we believe in and, and how we hold to things. So firstly, in essentials, unity. Scripture appeals to unity amongst God's children. It describes this unity as something beautiful, something that attracts and commands even His blessing. Romans 15 verse 5 says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, for the glory of God. And in that, we see a beautiful picture of the harmony and the unity that God is desiring for us to live in as God's people. I love what Paul says there, as Christ has welcomed you. See how he weaves the gospel into this issue. He's saying Christ is big enough to hold us together. He's big enough to welcome us despite our diversity and our differences. And so for us to be able to meaningfully and productively partner together, it's imperative that you and that we are clear around what's in our essential circle, right? And what's not in our essential circle. If you have something in your essential circle that's not in ours as a church, that's going to be a deal breaker right there or vice versa. It's going to be now impossible for us to really meaningfully partner together. For example, if a literal seven-day creation period is in your essential circle, and for us it's a non-essential, then we're really going to struggle. 
because it's going to keep being this massive issue that, that comes up. In the essentials thing, Michael Eaton is really helpful. He's a, a well, he was a theologian. He's now with the Lord, but um, now he's a much better theologian because <laughs> he understands much more. <laughs> um, he says this, the only real dividing line is between that which is and that which is not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he, he has a whole argument. Where he says we, we make all these things, church government and church structures, and we, we draw up these battle lines on these things. And he's like, those are actually not primary issues. They are secondary issues. They are not things that we are going to lose our lives over. The real issues is the gospel, is salvation. How, what do we believe around that? And so in essentials, it is imperative for us to have unity, to be in unity if we're going to partner together. Secondly, in non-essentials, liberty. And so what this means for us is that where we consider a matter non-essential, that is a non-salvation issue, there's a real freedom for us to hold different viewpoints on these matters and still run together and partner together in the gospel with integrity and mutual respect. Because what we're after here is the heart, not the mechanics of the issue. So if we take the literal seven-day creation issue as an example again, the heart of the matter is, do we believe in a creator God who is able to create on, on the time frame and in the way that he chooses and that he wants? And so if we're clear around our essentials, then it's easy to be clear around what's non-essential. And we don't draw up these false battle lines and make what we believe about this issue determinant of whether we can have genuine fellowship and partnership with one another. As Paul writes to Timothy, he says, we are to avoid foolish controversies. Just avoid them altogether. Debates and discussions about peripheral issues that go on and on and don't actually achieve anything constructive. Avoid them. And then the more mature that we are, ourselves, the more we should be able to bend, the more gracious we, gracious we should be around these things, these non-essential issues. And it seems like a lot of the time, those of us who are more mature can actually become more rigid around our ideas and our preferences and less inclined to show grace and tolerance. And we need to remember the one another's, tolerate one another, be at peace with one another, consider others more important than yourselves. So if you're a seasoned campaigner, you should have been around long enough to be able to just smile at some of the stuff that's really not the be-all and end-all and let it go. It's not fair to expect those who are younger in the Lord to, to be stronger on this than you are. I just think of my son, Caleb, who's four and a half. He says some pretty silly things sometimes. And as the more mature one in the relationship, it's up to me to tolerate those things and to gently steer him and guide him and not be like, oh man, what a load of rubbish, man. Like, you didn't build a tower four meters tall at school. I'm just like, yeah, boy, like, okay, like, I'm sure it was a big tower, but, you know. <laughs> let's, let's show liberty in these things. Let's show grace towards one another. This brings me to the third one. In all things, charity or love. And this speaks to the heart that we have towards one another, especially when we consider other churches. If only, guys, we could love one another better. If only we could stand, extend grace to one another liberally and display a real generosity of spirit, genuinely wanting the best for one another, genuinely showing honor and respect to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
Just consider how this has affected the church at large. How we've spoken evil of churches because they have a different view on something or a different way of doing things. And how there's been so little unity amongst churches and between brothers and sisters because we've drawn up these unhelpful battle lines around issues that are actually non-essential. Just reading James recently, and James is so, so strong around this. In James 4, he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against his brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? As Paul to the Romans, he writes, to each one, to his own master, each one stands or falls. And so our call is to love one another despite our differences and to let God judge his servants. Doesn't he know the motives of their hearts better than we do? Isn't he the one to whom all things are laid bare and the most qualified, therefore, to judge whether or not their hearts were right? And we can do this because the things that unify us are far greater than the things that divide. Think of the things that we've got in common. Ephesians 4 says that there's one body, one spirit. We're called to the one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We have so much more in common in the gospel than we have that divides us. And so if only we could draw up as I said, better battle lines. We could run so much harder and with so many more people. And this needs to start in our hearts. It needs to start with us. We can't be sitting here thinking, yo, like, I wish that church down the road would hear this sermon and get this. Like, <laughs> it's got to start here. It's got to start with us. Where are you in your own heart? Is your supreme concern for the gospel and the honor of Christ in his church? So therefore, we practice love, generosity, support, prayer, encouragement. I always think, when I think of this, I think of a story when I was at Varsity, I was involved with the church um, at the time, and uh, we, we used to go to the reses, and we would go in, in orientation week and tell them about the different churches, and there was a whole bunch of us from different churches who would go together, and we would sort of say where we meet and what we do and what our church is about. Uh, and the one, the one evening, I had a, a mate from the Baptist church, Ryan, um, and I was about to get up to speak to this whole like, auditorium full of first years. And he pulls me aside. And he's like, bro, you sat in something. There's like some muck on the back of your pants. And I'm like, oh, flip, this is not good. So he like, come to me, like, pulls me aside, like whips off his pants. He's like, yeah, take my shorts. <laughs> and he like puts me out there, like swapped shorts and off I go. And for me, there's like a beautiful, beautiful display of... <laughs> I'm so glad he was wearing undies. <laughs> beautiful display of, of and this isn't a competition, guys. Like, we are for each other. We are for the gospel. We are for what God is doing through other churches. So we practice those things. I need to also say this, that love should not shy away from confrontation where needed and appropriate. We don't, obviously, don't just accept everything and anything in the name of being tolerant. For example, if someone starts tearing down the gospel and claiming that Jesus wasn't the son of God, that he was just a good man and a moral teacher, and they start proclaiming that from their pulpit, we'll have to lovingly speak out about that, yes. But not on non-essential issues. 
For example, we see this in Galatians 2, verse 11 to 16, where Paul opposes Peter to his face. Why? Because he saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. They were bringing in racial divisions into the church. And Paul saw this and he said, this is not in step with the truth of the gospel. And he confronted Peter. So there is a space for that. But it comes from a heart of love and a heart of grace. Great. So that's kind of just the, the, the background and the, and the shell um, and so, as I said, we want to be looking at what do we as a church believe, and this morning I want to focus on justification by faith alone as a central doctrine that we hold to, that we say this is a blood issue for us, we will die on this hill. And so can I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 3, verse 21, please. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 26, let's read it together. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Propitiation is a sacrifice that takes away wrath to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so for the remainder of this this message this morning, we're going to zero in on justification by faith alone. And we need to start here because at our core, we are a gospel community. Therefore, the basis of our fellowship, as I said earlier, is around the gospel. If not for the gospel message, what God has done in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we would have no basis for fellowship, guys. If we ceased to hold to this thing, we would implode as a community. We would lose our basis for calling ourselves a Christian community. So we cannot have Christian fellowship with someone who denies the gospel, with someone, for example, who denies that Jesus is the Son of God and claims that he was just a good man and a great moral teacher. We can't have fellowship with someone who claims that we are saved by our good works, by what we do to earn God's approval. Why? Because we hold that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith in the Son of God alone, for the glory of God alone. This is how we are saved according to the Scriptures. Now, should we respect such a person? Yes. Should we be kind and nice towards such a person? Yes. But should we partner with them, together with them, in the gospel? How can we? There is no partnership in the gospel because those essentials are not in place. And so what I want to do now is I want to explain justification a bit. And then we'll have a look at what implications this has and how it helps us to engage meaningfully in community. As we do that, I also want to take some time to show how the events that have come to light this week with the gender violence protests and the xenophobic attacks and all that stuff are powerfully addressed in the gospel. And hopefully, by God's grace, shed some light on how we can respond to these things. 
Because I know there are a lot of emotions, a lot of pain, anger, and frustration, even in this room. A lot of things that we're all dealing with and wrestling with, and we want to address that. We want to go to Jesus with those things because he's the only one, as Ali prayed this morning, who can truly help us there. Okay, so firstly, to understand justification, we need to have a basic understanding of sin and its consequences, right? All of us as humans stand condemned before the holy and righteous God because of our sin, because of the rebellion that we have all entered into. All human beings have sinned and rebelled against God and turned away from Him. And Paul mentions this in the above text in Romans 3. But he describes this condition at length in the first chapter of Romans, as well as in texts like Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2. I'm not going to read them now, but you're welcome to go to note them and check them out if you, if you want to see more. And so at its core, the issue is this. We humans were created by God as image bearers to live under His good rule and to exercise that good rule over His creation. And Genesis chapter 2 describes God's intent for humankind And in verse 25, we see that he created men and women in his image. Male in his image and female in his image. And we see that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now what that means is that God created us to walk in innocence and honor. His design for our lives, these wonderfully intricate And complex beings called humans was that we would be the pinnacle of his creation and that we would be marked by innocence and honor. But then we all know how the story goes. They rebel against their creator. They make the call to reject God and they seek to become their own gods. And sin tragically enters into the world. And the immediate thing that we see happening and in verse 7 of Genesis 3 is that their eyes are open, it says, Their eyes are opened, and for the first time, they're aware that they are naked. And in that moment, the innocence and the honor that we were created to live in disintegrated. Innocence gives way to guilt, and honor gives way to shame. And I think for many of us, guilt and shame are often used interchangeably. We kind of just guilt and shame, guilt and shame, we use them together. But guilt and shame are not the same thing. They are both about falling short of some standard, yes, but guilt is a legal idea. It's falling short of a clear moral standard that God has set in place. Shame is different. Shame is not the breaking of a moral standard. It has more to do with our self-concept and how we fall short of an ideal view of ourselves. And so there's a guy called Dick Keyes, and he wrote a brilliant paper on the interplay between guilt and shame in our lives. And so uh, a lot of what I'm going to say this morning has been informed by that. And he says, he explains that psychologists say all of us have a self-ideal, which is a picture that we carry in our minds of the person that we would like to be. And it's, it's, it's genuinely a heroic ideal, a heroic view of ourselves. And when we invariably fall short of that heroic ideal that we carry in our minds, we experience shame. For example, if you see yourself as a faithful man who would never, ever cheat on his wife, but you start messing around online and you indulge in secret fantasies about someone who's not your spouse, your actions now show that you fall short of your self-ideal and you begin to feel a sense of dirtiness 
And that feeling is shame. And so guilt and shame can work together or they can operate separately on their own. And when they work together, we feel a sense of guilt. And in a healthy way, we feel a sense of guilt over breaking a clear command of God. And we also feel shame because we thought we were better than that. And as I said, this is where it's at its most healthy, when the interplay is most healthy. When we feel these things and experience them as an indicator light on the dashboard of our lives, telling us loudly that there is something has gone wrong in our hearts, that our Heavenly Father has got something better for us. And so they act as a spiritual diagnostic that should make us run to the Father. And this is within the framework of when we properly understand grace, justification, and adoption, which I'm going to take some time to explain more this morning, because they are central and key doctrines of the gospel and of the Christian faith. Then, when shame and guilt are at work independently of each other, you can have situations where we know we've clearly done something wrong. We've clearly broken one of God's moral laws, but we do not feel shame at all. And Romans 1, um, Paul talks about this, where we break God's law, but we don't care. We're brazen about it. And so not only do we break his laws, but we actually applaud others who do the same. And then there are times when we feel shame over ourselves, not because we've actually done anything wrong, we've violated anything, any of God's standards, but because of a twisted self-ideal that we're carrying. And we feel shame over something. So sometimes um, we might feel shame for being poor. Have we done something wrong? No, you haven't done anything wrong but you feel shame because you fall short of a self-ideal of something that you feel or believe that you should be. And so these things can, can work independently of each other. Sometimes we can even feel shame for doing the right thing. We might get shamed at work for, for speaking out the gospel, for proclaiming the gospel, or at school and, and the cool kids ridicule us for sticking up for the class, you know, the class loser. We feel shame for those things, but we've actually done something right. And so one of the things that I need to speak into here this morning is this issue of what we celebrate, of the heroes that we hold in our minds in society. And I think this is fueling something of what we're seeing at the moment with the whole men are trash movement. We live in a culture where our ideals around sexuality are utterly twisted and messed up. A culture where so many men talk so disgracefully about women, as if they're property, as if they don't have souls, as if all they are is a body to be used for a man's pleasure, and not image bearers of God created for honor and love. And we're seeing so plainly and horrifically how this plays out, where men objectify and dehumanize women, and the results are horrific. And this is gross, heinous sin. For those of us who are fathers of girls and young women here, in fact, for those of us who are men here, who have encountered Jesus and seen the way that he loves his bride, we should carry a special godly violence in our hearts against this. We should not tolerate it in any way, shape, or form. We should not tolerate these attitudes in our own hearts, or in our friendship circles, or in our conversations, because that is not how we learn Christ. 
So going back to guilt and shame, we need to be aware of how these things play out in our lives and how they often play out in three things. Anger, abuse, and lust. And one of the things that often happens as a result of walking in guilt and shame is that we now become angry. The guilt that we feel at falling short of God's moral law and the shame that we feel at falling short of our ideal selves has this tendency to spawn anger in our hearts. And it's, it's generally an anger that manifests as self-hate, and it leads us to first abusing ourselves. And there are so many ways that this can work itself out, whether it be self-harm or eating disorders, or most often it's a giving over of yourself to the shame you feel. You're just like, oh, well, I just messed up, so I might as well just carry on in this sin. You lose sight of your value to God. And because we see no value in ourselves, we allow others to abuse us. We give ourselves away cheaply. We devalue ourselves. And then there are ways that the self-loathing spills out onto others and we begin to see abuse manifesting, whether it's verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. You prey on the weaknesses of others because it's the only time you feel strong. And isn't that what's happening all around us? We see men abusing women. We see adults abusing children. We see South Africans abusing foreigners. And it's always directed at someone who's more vulnerable, someone that we can have power over. And then we have lust, which is not the legitimate, God-created sexual desire for your wife or husband in the context of marriage. That's a good thing, and I want to affirm that. But lust is the dehumanizing of other human beings for the sole purpose of your own physical gratification. Lust is when we use and abuse people because we have no concern for them as a person, for their spirit, their soul, their emotions. We just want to use their bodies. All they are is a body. And the result that we see is people giving themselves away so cheaply because they don't believe they have any value. And the biggest tragedy is that they don't see how costly they were to God, who valued us so much that he paid the highest price for us on the cross. And so in the end, what we get is this perfect storm brewing of guilt and shame feeding into anger that feeds abuse and lust. And what's the solution? How can we ever address these things in our society and in our lives? How can we find hope? And I want to put it to you this morning that we can find it in the gospel. We can find it in Jesus Christ, in who he is, and in what he has done. And so then, how does the gospel deal with all this? Firstly, I want to look at how God handles guilt in our lives. And God handles guilt in our lives by justification. Justification is a legal term. Like I said, guilt is a legal issue, breaking a moral standard of God. And so justification is a legal term. It's a work of God whereby he takes the guilt of our sin and he puts it on his son, the Lamb of God, and makes a legal declaration over us. Not guilty, innocent, justified. Our sins are forgiven and Christ's righteousness is credited to our account. And God, the judge who judges justly, declares that those whose lives are under the blood of Christ are innocent in his sight. We have a new legal standing before God, which becomes the foundation of a new identity. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So this morning, when you feel a sense of guilt and inner uncleanness, I want you to know that all of your sins, Colossians 2.14 tells us, that God has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There is no sacrifice that you could bring that could accomplish this, and he knows it. That's why he sent his son. He has become your sacrifice. He has taken your guilt upon himself. He has nailed your debt, the record of your wrongs, against him and against people to the cross. All of it. All of it. What do you need to do to get this? Nothing. There is no sacrifice that you can bring. There is no righteous act or good works that, you, that could accomplish your right standing with God. So what then? You repent. You turn away from your sin and you trust Christ. You believe that He is enough. You believe that what He has done is perfectly sufficient to bring you back into right relationship with God. Justification, guys, deals with our guilt And this is a blood issue for us. We will preach week in and week out from this pulpit that there is nothing sufficient for your justification apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. And to offer any good works or any of our own righteousness to try and buy some justification is to antagonize the gospel and to spurn the cross of Christ. So that's justification. And it deals with our guilt. What about our shame then? The way that God addresses the sense of shame and unworthiness we carry is through His adopting love. Romans 8 verse 15 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So the way that God deals with shame is by driving it away through the affirmation that we are His beloved children. Shame dissipates like a morning mist when the sunshine of his delight continually shines upon us. When we come to see that we are fully known by God and still fully loved, the shame begins to go and it is replaced by security. And so the best way to stop shame from growing in your heart and your life is to be fully known. It is to bring your secrets into the light by confession. Bring them to the Father. And then to the community, which brings us back to meaningful community. God has given us community so that we can have people in our lives who know where we struggle, who know our secrets, and who can disarm the enemy, take away his ammunition. When the accuser, Scripture talks about Satan as being the accuser of the brethren. He comes to accuse Like we saw this morning, he comes to speak lies over your life. When the accuser comes to you and wants to heap shame on you, oh, look at what you've done, Ollie. How could you? I can answer this and say, yeah, I know. And what's more, my father knows. And what's more, Paul knows and Debs knows. 
And my friends know because I've opened my life up to them and I've let them in on these secrets so they're no longer secrets and they no longer have the power to heap shame on me because they're in the open. And so, accuser, shut your face. Let's quickly look at the story, I just want to end off with this, of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the youngest son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything. A severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him in his, into his fields to feed pigs. That, for a, a young Jewish man, is the epitome of shame. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance. No! His father saw him and felt compassion, and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, and put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this son was dead. This my son was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. They began to celebrate. And so here's this man. He is steeped in shame. He feels dirty. He is dirty. But when he comes to his senses, he goes home. He says, I'll be a servant. He doesn't even dare to expect intimacy. He's happy to settle for some kind of transactional relationship. I just want to like be near my father. I, I don't even believe that I'm worthy. I cannot accept that we could have that relationship again. I'll just, I'll work. We'll have an employment contract. I'll do my, my stuff. He'll pay my wages. It'll be better than where I am right now. How does the father respond? Okay, son, we'll give you a trial period. We'll put you on probation. We'll see how you do. <laughs> Give you a couple of years working the fields. See how hard you work. See how you can earn your, earn your way back. No. The father responds by having compassion on him. He allows no room for shame. He kills that thing. Takes it head on. It says, Come. Bring the robe. This is your identity. You're my son. Bring the ring. Signet ring of the family. You're one of us. What you say in this place goes. You're my son. You're not a servant. You're my son. I accept you. Come. 
the Father's delight destroys shame in our lives, guys. And so, before we ever go into sanctification and talk about sanctification, we need to understand our justification and our adoption. Sanctification is only what happens when we begin to live out of our new identity, out of our reordered desires, out of our acceptance as sons and daughters. Do you think the prodigal son, after he came home, got back to work for his father? I'll bet he did. I'll bet he enjoyed his work like never before. Whereas before he'd been slaving away in the fields with a sense of duty and obligation and anger in his heart. I'll bet he did it now with delight and deep gratitude. Because he knew that he wasn't doing it to earn his father's love, acceptance or favor. He knew deeply in his bones now that those things were irrevocably his. And no one could take them from him. And so, when we understand justification, when we understand adoption, that downward cycle that used to define our lives of guilt and shame and anger and self-hatred and abuse and worthlessness, that thing is broken and we begin to experience a completely new upward cycle where grace feeds love and where our delight in God just grows as we see and revel in His forgiveness and love over and over and over again, where His gospel comes into play in every situation and struggle and He just transforms us bit by bit and day by day. This is the journey of sanctification. This is what we serve out of. This is the place from which we meaningfully engage in community, where we give ourselves our time, our money, our service. This is not legalism. My friend Bernie puts it so nicely last week. He said this, legalism is what happens when we separate instruction from identity. Legalism is what happens when we separate instruction from identity. That one there. <laughs> Maybe it was Prisco. <laughs> and it's so different to moralism. Moralism is demoralizing because we're trying to do things out of an identity that just does not work, out of an identity that we've constructed ourselves rather than the identity that God speaks over us. And so it's the Word of God and community continually fueling our affection for God by affirming our new identity. That's why we preach this gospel week in and week out, over and over and over again. It's the same message. It's just different, different texts and different details, but it's the same message, God. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> Can we pray? <laughs> Let's pray. Father, this morning... I just want to thank you, God, that we can come and stand as a hopeful people in the midst of a dark world, Lord God. I want to thank you that good news invades the darkest spaces, Lord God. And I want to thank you that you've given us good news this morning. You've given us good news through your word, and you've given us good news in your Son, who is your final word to us, final word about how you deal with sinful and rebellious human beings, as a crucified Savior, absorbing it all onto Himself and dying 
so that we could be raised, so that we could receive a new identity, so that we could be accepted into your family. Father, by your Holy Spirit, this morning, I want to pray for people here who may be struggling with guilt or with shame. And I want to pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring your truth into their hearts with force and power and drive out the lies of the evil one, Lord God. Father, where this morning there might be even victims of abuse here, I want to pray for healing and freedom in the name of Jesus, Father. I want to pray for for, for grace and the strength to forgive those who have perpetrated these sins against them. I want to pray for the grace to trust you to avenge them, Lord God. For you are the only just and righteous judge. And I want to pray that you would liberate them from the cycle of self-hate and anger. And that something of what we said this morning, something of your word would take root in their hearts, Lord God. And begin to fuel a different cycle, Lord, as they begin to believe the truth about who they are, the truth that you've spoken over them and continually speak over them, Lord. I thank you that you're a redeemer and you're a healer here this morning, God. Father, I want to thank you for the example of masculinity that we have in Jesus Christ. That in Christ we see what a true man looks like. We see what self-sacrificial love looks like. We see what it is to lay our lives down and to offer our strength, not to exploit or to use, or to abuse, but to protect, and to shield, and to care for, as Christ did, for his body, for his bride. Jesus, I pray that you would shine in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of our world, God, and that we would not be ashamed of this gospel, but we would proclaim it with courage. In Jesus' name, amen.